Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. First of mine, welcome to our weekly Women Today podcast. On the show this week, I spent time with a 96-year-old poet and former codebreaker from Bletchley Park. We talked about the importance of art in the community, heard what it's like to live with psoriasis, and spoke to a man who learned transcendental meditation with the Beatles' own yogi. But first, we finished the week with a live broadcast from the Market Hall, taken over by a group of internationally successful fashion designers as part of this summer's Make Market Creative Initiative. As I say, we are here at the Douglas Market Hall, and um, this has really become a great venue for many, many pop-up events over the past few months. And the people behind uh, today's Fashion in Focus are Kate Breyer and Sammy Jones. Kate, thank you very much for inviting us down here. What exactly is happening? Well, thanks for coming down. Uh, Today we're doing fashion and focus it's a two-day well almost three-day really because we've got some content on Saturday as well but um it's part of the make market creative industries takeover we're showcasing different creative industries on the island uh, today specifically we're doing uh, a focus on designers who are working in the UK who studied on the island amazing inspiring girls they're stylists fashion designers photographers um, they're showing their work here, they're here to talk to uh, visitors, uh, chat about their work, their experience, anyone can come down and kind of get advice um, and, and see what they've been up to because it's really, really interesting work. The advice is something I'll possibly come back to in just a moment, but Sammy, uh, there was a, a panel uh, discussion last night that was also held down here, really well in, uh, attended. What was the aim of that? The aim of that was a to sort of showcase the girls' experience and let them talk about the sort of transition from growing up and studying on the island, going to the UK and further afield, and the journey of sort of some of them have come back to the island now, and they were talking about sort of creative industries on the island and what there is for what support there is for people who want to get into creative industries on the island. So it was, it was a very informal night, and we wanted people to ask questions and get involved, which they did. So we're coming over now to uh, Bethany Williams' table here. Um, I'm just going to spring this on you, Bethany, sorry. Uh, not to worry, but you are live on Manx Radio. Hi there. Hi. <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you. And you as well. So just um, explain a little bit about your work, because you have um, a very interesting background. You've got a really interesting ethos behind your work. Yeah, um, yeah I used to work for Nike um, and worked in industry for menswear designers for three years. And then I went to do my MA at London College of Fashion in menswear. And so I work in collaboration with charity um, each season and create uh, yeah, collections working with the communities too and um, so I make sustainable menswear from recycled or organic fabrics. That's really cool so you've got quite a passion in the idea of the kind of social nature of it really haven't you? Yeah very much so I'm really interested in like social responsibility and also working in collaboration with charity. How did that fit with working for Nike just out of interest? Um, yeah, I left. <laughs> so did you learn here then? Did you learn your craft over here? Yeah, I studied um, at the Isle of Man College and then I did my art foundation there, which was like the best year of my life. Like, I loved it because you meet like really like-minded people on the same island and like you both all develop together what you're going to go to university to do. So that was really great. And St. Ninian's, I did my art and textiles there and that was kind of like an already doing an art foundation. It was brilliant. So, yeah. Why did you decide specifically to focus on men's fashion? Menswear. Um, I just prefer the cut, and I think it's not as explored as women's wear. So I prefer, I think there's more to do in the area. Yeah. 
And when you're talking about using recycled materials, what sort of materials are you using to make these clothes? Um, so I did, I organised, uh, I worked with the Vauxhall Food Bank and Tesco's. So Tesco's gave me fresh fruit and vegetables, which I handed out at the food bank in exchange for waste garments. So then I used the waste garments to make the collection and then then I don't, with the sale of the garment, 30% goes back to the food bank. So it's kind of like creating a cycle of exchange, but I specialised in denim and knitwear. And then I created a new fabric from cardboard that Tesco's donated. And then they also donated their branding, which I made into organic prints, like, like make, trying to make 100% products. So organic thread, zips, fabrics, and then the recycled are all 100% recycled. So recycled zips, thread, every component's recycled. And how does it feel, when we've got some photographs behind us, how does it feel seeing people wearing your pieces? Yeah, it's a really great feeling. Um, and for like my lookbook that I shot, um, I used models from the food bank and paid them uh, a model rate. So the guy Mustafa, that was like his first pay job in eight months. So it's really just quite a nice feeling to everything to have the same ethos. That's amazing. And you also talk about the idea of um, working with uh, the environmental issues as well. Do you think some of that maybe came from living here on the island and being sort of around nature in that respect? Yeah, no, definitely. My, my family are really like really passionate about the environment and sustainability. And I think here, like because my granddad would grow our own vegetables on the allotment, and I think like that kind of thing kind of inspires you from an early age, and it becomes kind of a way of life. Oh, it's fascinating, and I love these outfits, and I really want to see someone wearing them because they're really interesting. They've got a really interesting kind of shape and cut to them. And how would you actually describe them? Because they're, they're sort of all in one, aren't they? Your pieces? Yeah, well, I've got some all in one, and then two pieces as well. But they're all um, handmade, and the embroideries or embellishments are all handcrafted. So all the knitting is all done by hand knitters. All the embroideries hand embroidered. All the weaving is hand woven. So it takes a lot of time, but yeah. <laughs> so to produce one of the what kind of time are we talking? Um, a basket woven jacket will take probably about four weeks to make, um, a jumper two weeks. Um, then the prints are a lot easier. They're like can be made in factory because they're like entry level, um, entry level prices and everything's produced in Britain so it's also quite expensive. Oh it's yeah. so cool. Where can people find out more if they want to investigate your work? Um, I've got my own website so bethany-williams.com and I'm also on Instagram so it's bethany underscore williams underscore London if they want to check me out. Now we're talking about girl guiding in the Isle of Man. It's the island's largest voluntary youth organisation. There are 65 groups for young women aged between 5 and 26 and we're joined Joined live here by Tasha Carter, who's the PR advisor and a leader, and Sharon Lanigan, who is the current island commissioner. Thank you so much for both the, to both of you for being here. So, what would you say, Sharon, is the real aim of this organisation, other than giving girls, you know? events out I guess like camping and things like that which is the sort of things people associate with guiding uh, there is yeah a big 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 on adventure um, we want to provide opportunities as well for all young people there's opportunities to, to go to various places to go to different parts of the world to take part in exciting events and also to develop as a young person as well some of the skills that we provide to those young leaders they uh, they work all the way through into their university into their working life um, so there's lots of skills that they can learn in different areas 
And the reason we're talking today is because you desperately need more volunteers and there's a real danger that some of your units will have to close if you don't find them. Uh, unfortunately, yes, there is. Um, some of our leaders, uh, they try to struggle to manage more than one unit at a time and it is tough for them. So what we need is more people to help at the unit level. Now, it doesn't have to be a commitment to come every single week. That unit help can be something as so simple as helping with accounts, helping with um, certain events. It can, you know, it can suit and be tailored to the individual. It doesn't have to be a commitment every single week. It can be a commitment of a few hours every term. And in terms of the sort of person that you're looking for to be a volunteer, Tasha, what sort of experience do they need to have had, particularly, I suppose, within girl guiding? No experience whatsoever. We just want someone to come to be passionate and, as Sharon said, give someone, give some time to us because we were just having a conversation, actually. The most precious thing you can give in life is time. And if someone's got that to give us, then we'd be very, very grateful. We can give them all the experience that they need. It's just coming up to 20 minutes to three now. Now, just a little bit earlier on in the show, we were talking about the fact that Oxford City Council wants to drop the terms Mr and Mrs from forms. We've had an email in from Jan. It's, it's quite long, but it's brilliant, this. She says, I am a female and married, but prefer not to use a title on forms because in most cases, my marital status is irrelevant and unnecessary. A man just uses Mr regardless of marital status. However, I soon discovered that forms were being rejected because I'd not entered a title. So I began using Ms instead, and I've noticed more more and more forms are offering this helpful option. I would welcome dropping titles on forms and, where relevant and pertinent, use other boxes to declare gender and marital status. Younger women won't necessarily be tuned into the fact that in the old days, being a missus meant that we could be discriminated against. Married women not being able to get loans in their own right without their husband needing to agree to it and sign the form, etc. I think that language can be a loaded gun and define attitudes, so let's liberate ourselves from unnecessary necessary titles. That's from Jan. Absolutely brilliant email there. Thank you very much. And if you want to comment on that, do let us know. One double six one double seven. Now, our studio guest today, Dave Mosley, is a man of many talents, as we have been hearing earlier on in the show. And he's also one who hangs around with some pretty exceptional people, including Roger Dean. And we're going to be talking about that in just a minute. But Dave, with all the places you've lived in around the world, how on earth did you end up being on the Isle of Man? Well, as I said, I, I was on the Isle of Man in the 70s. And then a business was uh, started up in the UK that needed uh, to look at getting Isle of Man regulation for one of its uh, one of its operations. So I came over here to do that um, back in 2013, and decided I'd like to stay. And since then, two or three other businesses have sort of emerged around me or in, in collaboration with me. And I'm working with a lot of people who are actually on the island doing some of the things in either music, film, games, or television that. Uh, that I'm interested in. So that's really what happened. I, I, I came back and and collided with a lot of like-minded spirits, really, I guess. That's the way I'd put it. So you've got the like-minded spirits, but mm. is there the infrastructure here to allow you to be able to do what you want to do? Well, that's a very good question. Um, there is a fantastic data infrastructure here, and I think it needs to get itself sorted out with, with uh, its uh, cost competitiveness with uh, working off the island into into the you know the, the wider world uh, and i know there's a lot of people looking at that at the moment uh there's a lot of talent here but it seems to be fragmented in the my sector the uh, animation and, and games production they're either working for the large gambling gaming companies or are just individuals who go off island to get work and then come on and what i'm um intending to well hoping to announce in the next year or so well, certainly within the next year, is that there are several 
significant games and significant series that can be animation series that we can produce a core of on the island. We have a company here now which we've set up with a lot of support from government and from private investors on the island that's producing four uh, multiplayer online games, uh, one of which is licensed from NBC Universal. It's called Grim, Grim Dark Legacy. As in based... the Grim fairy tales, is it? It's as in the Grim, it's Ooh. as in the Grim series, uh, the TV series. Oh, excellent. It's, it's that series, but it's, we've set it back in, the, the game is set back in the uh, in 14th century Bavaria, where you are either a Grimm or a Vesson, and uh, you uh, you stalk each other out and work out how you how you win or lose. But um, we've got four games going. We've got six people working on the island, a larger number of people working off. The next plan is to try and get a big enough uh, group of people here so we can actually have a, a significant production element on the island with probably 25 people, something like that. And that's where it'll kick off into a into a sort of uh, a critical mass, I think, I hope, anyway. Exciting times. Now, you managed to score yourself a couple of BAFTAs. Tell us about that. Ah, uh, yes. I, I led the team. I always say that this, you know, when you run the company and you put the team together and you go and get the business, um, it's the team at the end of the day that achieves the awards. So we won our first BAFTA in 2004 for a BBC series called Battlefield Britain uh, with Peter Snow, and uh, that, that was great we were so pleased um and then the next year we were nominated again for uh, a special uh which was again bbc and it was hiroshima and we won we, we we curiously we won two years in a row so that was quite a quite an achievement and it was for the sort of cgi elements it was for there. the visual effects computer graphics and uh, and, and all that yeah mm. uh, so we got two two baftas the company had Two BAFTAs, two Royal Television Society Awards. We've got two Emmy nominations but never won them. Wow, that's and, cool. Yeah, and uh, but it's great. It gives the whole, everybody feels very proud, you know, and uh, you always try and get as many people up to go into the acceptance as possible without looking ridiculous. <laughs> And um, and you get this large lump of bronze to uh, put on your shelf afterwards. I feel very fortunate because I actually managed to get my hands on your BAFTA, so to well, speak, once, didn't I? You know, they were. I remember because we uh, you were down in London and yeah. then they got uh, brought through. Yeah, yeah, they did. Because didn't you lose one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one got stolen at an airport, but there you go. Oh, no. Well, uh, now we mentioned some of the people that you've worked with and some of these exciting names that, that you know and have worked with, one of which is Roger Dean. How yeah. did you come to meet Roger Dean and what is the work that you've been doing with him? Well, as I said, we had a visual effects company. We were uh, gathered together by a group of in people who wanted to build a new Stonehenge. And because Roger had done lots of new age type design, he was brought in. I was brought in to look at creating a computer graphics re representation of it. And he saw a piece of my work which was the Cygnosis logo, which we'd animated, a big computer game company, and he'd done the original design. So we said, oh, look, that's I did that. And I said, oh, well, we animated that. And we just got talking. We started developing a couple of films and then have stayed in touch for the, over the 20-year period. And when I moved here, I said to Roger, you've really got to come and see The Isle of Man. And he loves it and came and spoke at the film festival. Now there's the uh, the um, the uh, they met the post office and they asked if he did produce a set of stamps for them, which has just been released, and then the idea came to put an exhibition up at the uh, the Manx Museum, and we had a fantastic team there working with us, um, and there are you know ten million pounds worth of Roger Dean paintings now on the Isle of Man oh. being exhibited uh, for the next three months, which I hope everyone will get a chance to come and see. Was that exhibition um, created before he he decided that he was going to bring it over to the island and, and show it? No, Roger does exhibitions. His, his stuff is on the permanent collection at the Victoria and Albert Museum. It's in big galleries in the States and in 
in Southeast Asia and in Japan. And he periodically puts together, he's, there are probably, of the major pieces that Rogers created, about 120 in existence. And there are 26 of those on the island right now. Wow. Mm. And, you know, it's quite a thing, this, because not only, I mean, you say they're, they're exhibited in all these different places, they are also in many people's record collections. Oh, because yeah. Because the album covers that he's done are some of the, the most famous ever, really, aren't they? They really are. The uh, Tales from Topographic Oceans was voted as the album cover of the 20th century by Rolling Stone magazine readers, and uh, which is actually a very important thing, I think. And... Um, Quite, a, I mean, a lot of very famous album covers and games, games art is on the island. What people are used to seeing them is a little twelve-inch album cover. Uh -huh. These are six foot by four foot paintings in acrylic or oil or whatever he's happened to work with at the time on canvas. So they're really fabulous works of art. They're not computer graphic images at all. They're actually painted uh, pictures. They have got quite a, a graphic el element to them, though, haven't they? Mm. Oh yeah. They they have, but he's he's a, he. If you ask Roger what he is, he says he's a landscape painter, but the landscapes aren't ones you see out there. He creates new worlds, doesn't yeah. he? Which I think is probably where this the whole sort of Avatar thing Absolutely. came from. Absolutely, yeah. As soon as Avatar came out, Roger got hundreds and thousands of people congratulating him on his new film, and he said he, he hadn't done it. And then he went and looked at it, and he thought, oh well. I wonder where they got those ideas from. <laughs> and there was a, a very notable court case as, as a result of it. And it it's was. fascinating to hear him talk about it last year at the film festival. Mm. So just uh, remind us when and where this exhibition is so people can go and uh, see it. There's a, there's a private viewing uh, tomorrow night and then it, it opens on the, on the 20th. Uh, and it runs for three months at the Banks Museum. And uh, there's not only the paintings are there, but there are two large architectural models of some of the buildings he's designed as well. That's worth a look. Uh, we are welcoming a fine art degree student who has actually been on the show before, uh, and she's a primary school teacher as well. But this week, she's uh, spending part of her summer holidays running an exciting series of workshops for children at the Market Hall. Uh, Kirsten, do you know what? One thing I forgot to do when I was introducing you earlier is I forgot to ask how you actually pronounce your surname, because it looks like Penzies. I but, You're right, that's it. But that's well interesting because, it, 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 like in Scotland, it would be Pingus because Menzies right. is Mingus. Isn't I know, it? gosh, you can make all sorts of combos with that name. <laughs> but it, it's Hungarian, so it, you would say Penzash, and it means rich man in Hungarian. Oh, wow. Yeah. Penzash, so that's fantastic. Father's ancestry. Yeah, <laughs> and obviously, judging by your accent, you're not originally from the Isle of Man. No. Just tell us a bit about where you're from. So I'm from Melbourne, Australia, grew up in Tasmania. What was that yeah. like? Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Another <laughs> island, but a very different kind of right. island. Right, like, okay, so the Isle of Man is like a speck if you overlay it onto Tasmania. So it's a much bigger island. But you've got the beauty of not too far away, you've got a mountain, not too far away, you've got a beach, you know. So it's the same sort of nature. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to go see it. Do you, are you able to get home very often? Because it's, it's very far away. Yeah. That must be a lot of plane rides. We're very lucky. We get away every Christmas we go back. Nice. And it's a 32-hour kind of journey, I suppose, door-to-door. Yeah, oh, it's intense. <laughs> oh, gosh, I can imagine. Now, yeah. um, we did have some photos of your art when you were in last mm. time, but you work with a lot of different materials. So I yeah, wonder, I how would you actually describe your art? Oh, it's a tricky one. I would say... Um, um, mixed media, obviously, and then I would say I'm I'm delving more into the 3D, and I'm interested in that um, nature of collaboration, um, and nature of installations, and that kind of interaction that the audience has with the work. Um, yeah, I think that's where I'm 
very interested in. Although saying that, um, I think this year, as far as my own artistic practice, I think I'm going to develop my ceramic work. Um, yeah, so I want to develop skills a bit more and techniques in that area. And yeah. the ceramic work that I've seen of yours, there mm. is an element to it that it has a quite a traditional oh. feel. Sort of, yeah. It's got a traditional feel, but it's got like a outrageous tactile yeah. exterior to it. <laughs> so that's, uh, so yeah, that's another fundamental thing is I like my things to be interactive, that they have that ability that you want to just touch them and feel them and stuff like that. Yeah. There's such a lovely community here and you get really embraced into the creativity world, creative world here. And um, yeah, it's been good fun. I have to say, as an outsider, I'm not really in that sort of creative, you know, making things world. But going to events like uh, the Kriniak Craft mm. Fair that was on earlier uh, earlier in the month and having all those creative bodies mm. in one place, yeah. you really come to understand how much the Isle of Man has to offer. There and is so much there. And I think that's what's been so interesting, this creative industries is now sort of starting... Uh, I really hope that we start to see a lot more because there is so much going on and you don't realise really. So, yeah. So the creative industries, is that a way of sort of bringing artists from all different sort of areas together? Exactly. Um, And whether it's just to be aware of all these industries that are going on and it's also, I suppose, to show the potential of the creative industries and what they can provide as a service to the community. Um, but also to open up collaborations maybe across different industry, different creative industries as well. Um, and I think it's also to push that creatives that as a, as a society we need creativity in our lives and to sort of highlight where that creativity exists within industries, yeah. I think that's a really good point, yeah. actually. And um, with the likes of the, we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about what you're doing at the Market Hall, mm-hmm. but this seems like another really great opportunity to sort of promote that at the Market Hall because they're sort of turning it into a creative space oh. all summer, aren't they? Helen Fox has done an amazing job. So um, at the moment, the college is sort of renting the space and um, we've been there for two years as um, students, the degree students um, reside down there. But during the summer holidays, um, we've got the Make Market event ha- events happening, and that's across the board. So it's architecture, film, fashion, music, and so much more, crafts and things like that. So um, there's so much going on there, and people just need to walk down there, and, and there's things happening every day. So there's plenty to do, and a lot of it is free. Now, Stephen Palfreman in that interview there um, was talking about the fact that he's concerned for the future of the theatre. And it's interesting because all of these workshops that we're talking about today, all about the visual arts and the creative arts. I wonder, do you agree with Stephen there that it is a difficult time for the arts? And if so, is it still important then that we do bring kids up in that way and have them go to all these workshops and things if perhaps Mm -hmm. there may not be as much of a future in it, certainly financially? Well, I think it's been quite tricky really because you know funding is quite low mm-hmm. um, but saying that I think creatives industries contribute a lot to the community and I think they are highly valued and they're an outlet for us as well and I think they're fundamental actually to our upbringing and to our education and I think it's a real credit to all these companies that are offering this service to children because the other thing is that I, I don't I think teachers in education are doing an amazing job, really are, but they're not getting enough funding and support, especially in the arts, are getting cut back. Not so much here on the island, I've found, but 
definitely in the mainland UK, there's been quite a bit of cutbacks to education, particularly in the creatives. And I, I think we really need to back them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny you say uh, on the art of man. There's a lot of uh, still support for the arts, and we have the arts council a lot to They're thank brilliant. for that. That's yeah, right. um, really, really, they do a great job um, supporting the arts around the island. Uh, what's interesting as well is I follow quite a lot of the UK theatre and what's going on with the financial aspects of that and closing theatres and whatnot. And recently, there's been a huge uh, focus on the amount that performers are actually paid. Mm. Um, that really, you know, they are working in art. They are artists. They are products that uh, the audience come and watch. And they're just p- performers are not paid a reasonable amount, way yeah. below minimum wage. Yeah. Um, which again is something that's confusing because they're providing just as much of a service as, as anyone else, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that cause certainly from the music side of things. And um, when I've tried to do music, <laughs> tried to do music myself before <laughs> in the past, and there really isn't money in it, and so it is difficult. Because and yet, music is one of the things that we all need and want in our lives. Yeah, fundamental. And, it, to us. and I think this is what we we think that they're kind of just a hobby, but there is so many links. And if you just talk about music. It's got mathematical links. It's got scientific links. It can be embedded into education. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel that, yeah, we need to be bolstering the creatives as a way of teaching other subject areas as well. Station X, Bletchley Park. They have their regiments, their flags, their rituals. We were a motley crew. In and out we surged and no one knew what we were doing. They have their medals and their pride. We have the memory of a complete silence, thousands wide. First of all, how old were you when you went there? Do you remember the first days? Yes, I remember that I was 21. I had just graduated almost the same day and I was sent a letter to say, please report us to uh, Bletchley Park. I didn't know why. Uh, walked up to the gates of this uh, country mansion and uh, bless my soul there was somebody I knew coming to meet me and he was a, a, a senior lecturer in Manchester University from which I had just left he said we've been trying to get you here for some time and we went and signed the official secrets book and then we we talked, and he said more or less what were, what they were doing because I had signed the official secrets book, and I was quite safe to tell. He's, was, he must have talent spotted you at university. So what was it you were doing at university? Well, I was studying French and German. So what were your tasks then at Bletchley Park? I was an indexer. People worked very hard. Uh, they didn't have sort of little jollifications in the office mm. or anything like that. But we really felt that it was very important and we mustn't make mistakes and we must get it down. The translations of the codes would come in and we would take the top one and then decide what was important about it. And that was interesting about being an index. It wasn't just you read a story and you you found out what, what would be useful to know. So were you aware of quite how important the work was that was well, going on there? Not the least, no. I was just doing where I, I was going where I was sent, wanting to do uh, something for the war. And I, I'd been discouraged from joining up. Said you, you could be much more useful if you finished your degree and uh, we'll find something for you to do. So they did. 
we were never allowed to talk to each other. When, we, when I say never allowed, it was understood. Uh, we were never browbeaten to say, oh, you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that. We just knew that this was a secret matter and that if it ever got out, we would be finished. They would change their codes and ciphers and we would have no information. How long were you actually there for? Four years. Then at the end of that, the, the, the end of the war, the very day, everybody sort of trickled away. Nobody took any notice of it at all. There was no uh, special goodbye ceremony or anything like that. We were just allowed to, 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 to go away. Nothing was said about Bletchley Park until 1974. And I'm also joined by um, Catherine, your daughter here. Now, Catherine, you presumably, when you were growing up, didn't know anything about your mother's history at Bletchley Park. No, she's incredibly good at keeping quiet when she needs to keep quiet. And I didn't actually realise that she was also writing poetry. And when did you find out about Bletchley Park? Now, I'm not very good on dates, but Mum was, I think, probably one of the very last to talk about it. She she did say that she'd been there and was very quiet about it. And she started to reveal details after about five people had written books and told everything and films had come out and all the rest of it. But I always rather preferred my mother's view of it because when we went to visit Bletchley Park for the first time, you know, many, many years later, it really was a question of Nissen huts. There was no luxury. And I, I loved my mum telling me about the terrible quality of the nighttime sandwiches, you know. It was, it was, this was not luxury in any, any shape or form. Which, considering the incredible importance of the work they were doing... They were half-starved, as far as I could tell. And there was a chap who used to throw his teacup into the lake in a fit of absent-mindedness after he'd had his cup of tea. He would just think, oh yes, move on, and the teacup would go into the lake. And were you aware of any of the... Um, obviously, there's a couple of notable people that have been featured in some of these films, and obviously the likes of Alan Turing. Were you aware of him at all? Afterwards, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not at the time. He could have been any of the young young men walking around in baggy trousers and things like that. I never knew anybody. Actually, when we were in Nigeria, we were um, living in two bungalows next door to each other. And uh, being young wives, we, we met each other. And I said, what were you doing in, during the war? She said, she said oh... Well, I was in a place you wouldn't know, Bletchley. I said, what? I said, you were in Bletchley? So was I. And silence fell. None, neither of us would t say a word more because we were very, very careful how we mustn't whisper to anybody, give anybody a hint of what we were doing. We were just doing a civil service job, if anybody asked. And obviously we're here partly today because, as we've mentioned, this poetry, you are releasing a book of poetry. Uh, Catherine, you have it there in front of you. It, it, does, it does, as I mentioned, cover such a wide scope of topics and it's obviously from many, many years. How, how many years is this, is this collection from? This is 70 years. This is a lifetime of poetry, which is a very rare thing to do in a, in a book because it's so seldom that you get the entire arc of somebody's creative life in that way. So it goes from Turkey's to Bletchley, to the Olympics, everywhere.
I love that. I was looking through it last night and spotted the Olympics poem and I thought, how very perfect. It's just and wonderful. The, and the, these twin divers have mm. just won gold. Shall I read this? It's very Please short. Please do. I'd love to, I'd love to This hear is um, one of the verses on the Olympics. Um, it's called High Dive. Poised on the edge, balancing thought, the twin boys parallel plunge like double dolphins, cleaving the water cleanly leaving no scar, no signature, but the ripple of applause. I love that. What's it like hearing your daughter read your poetry? Well, I've never heard anybody read it before. <laughs> well, I think Catherine does, does me justice. I'd rather she read it than me. <laughs> but for, for, for years, most of my life, I haven't admitted that I wrote poetry because it's not an easy uh, thing to, to talk about. You've done the talking when you've written the poem. What more can you do? I think poetry is enigmatic. Don't know how it comes, why it comes, or why it goes away. <laughs> and, and the thing is to do is to get, get hold of it before it disappears. I've got envelopes here now with snatches of things that would, would come, would, could, could be built up into a poem. But I, I now can't read them. <laughs> I can't read the, the notes or the poems or anything. Take it, take it while it comes. It's a gift. And Catherine, obviously we have this beautiful book of the poetry in front of us that we've been hearing this afternoon. Just tell us where, we can, where people can get hold of it. The best way is probably to send an email to cnbookslondon at gmail.com and then you can get your very own copy. It's a beautiful artefact. I'm, I'm so so proud that you've been able to do so so well uh, on, on such mediocre material. <laughs> False modesty. She's always been like that. She can't help it. It's the secrecy. I blame Bletchley Park, actually. It could be. Psoriasis is a chronic skin condition. Typically, it will affect the backs of the elbows, the fronts of the knees, perhaps the lower back, but it can affect any part of your skin and it tends to cause red uh, raised areas of skin with, with silvery scaly parts and often you can get a lot of, of, of flakes of skin coming off. And of course it stands to reason that if that is affecting parts of the skin that you can't hide, so particularly your hands and your face, then it can have a big impact on how you feel, you know, your emotional well-being and so on. And, and the study that was funded by Novartis has really actually, for me, it makes them quite sad reading. So you've already mentioned that 64% of Brits wouldn't want to go to the beach. 78% of people with psoriasis said that they have felt that people have humiliated them as a result. Patients tell me that people don't want to touch them, they're frightened that they're going to catch this disease and it's absolutely not a contagious disease. We don't fully understand what causes it. We know that it's related to our immune system and there's also a genetic component. So a lot of patients Patients will have a family member who also has the condition. And quite often it's triggered by a stress, and that can be an emotional or a physical stress. So it may be a redundancy, a relationship breakup, or an operation, or an accident, a serious illness, and that can trigger a flare-up. So it's a complicated disease, but it's one that is so much more than just a skin disease. It can really have enormous impact on the rest of people's lives. Now, speaking of impact on people's lives, we're speaking to Victoria Fine as well, who has psoriasis herself. Victoria, do you relate to this, the idea of being even humiliated and, and suffering with regard to self-esteem? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
I think living with psoriasis can be really difficult. It affects all aspects of your life. Um, and in a lot of ways that people don't see, uh, it is, it is an, obviously an extremely visible disease. Um, but the, I think the worst effects are, are inside. Um, and that has a lot to do with how people treat you and how you interact with so, uh, society because of the way we look. So I'm 33 now. I've had it since I was sort of 16, 17. I believe I might have had it as a child, but it didn't cause too much of a problem. Um, however, when I first was diagnosed, um, I woke up one morning and I was absolutely covered. It was quite shocking. It just came from nowhere. Are there physical effects to it? Like, do, do you feel sort of uncomfortable? Is it itchy? Is it sore? I can never find the words to describe how it feels. It's extremely uncomfortable, very itchy, very painful. Um, it kind of makes your skin feel really tight. I think the best thing that most people can relate to is when you fall off your bike when you're a kid and you graze your knee, that moment as you hit the pavement, that's how it feels. <laughs> and with regards to the idea, you know, it's hard enough obviously to deal with what you're talking about now, but then the idea that you feel humiliated by people, what are some of the responses that you, that you get from people? Um, unfortunately, I've, I've been quite unlucky in the fact that I've had quite severe psoriasis most of my life. Um, and aside from the looks and the people whispering as you go past and things like that, I've um, been asked to leave swimming pools. I've had people uh, pull their children away from me. If I'm on queuing in a shop and their child is there, they'll pull their child away from me uh, or not want to touch me. But overall, I'm, I'm quite a positive person. So I, I do find that most people will notice my personality more than the psoriasis and once you get talking to them you can explain it and all of a sudden to them it doesn't seem so bad. I mean being in a swimming pool would have absolutely no impact on anyone else in the pool I'm assuming. Not at all no um, the, the only difference it would make to them is that they have to look at us um, which hopefully isn't that big a deal um, that's that's what I'm working towards anyway I want to raise awareness um, I feel society, if they understood it more and got used to seeing it more, they'll understand that there's no threat there, it's not contagious, it's not going to affect you in any other, any way at all. Um, the only person that really has to deal with it is the person living with it, and if people could be a bit more accepting, that would make it a lot easier to do. And Victoria, just for anyone listening out there who is struggling with psoriasis at the minute, what sort of words of encouragement could you give them? Don't give up. Um, just like Dr. Harper said, keep going back to your doctor, go back to your GP. I think one thing that we don't talk about is, is our goals. What do we want? Do we want to achieve clear skin or do we just want to achieve a clear arm or a manageable state? Um, speak to your doctor, work on it together, open that communication up and set some goals together and take little steps and hopefully with that support there, you will get there. And of course, speak to people. I mean, jo join us on Twitter with the hashtag you can, we did. There's so much activity at the moment where psoriasis patients are rising up, coming out and supporting each other. So there's plenty of support and resources on psoriasense.co.uk. There's a lot you can do, so don't give up. It's just coming up to 20 minutes to three now on Women Today. Now, our studio guest is a commissioner by day and a conniving thief by night. Ben Heath, this will sound very familiar to you. In this life, one thing counts in the bank. Large amounts. I'm afraid these don't grow on trees. You got to pick a pocket or two. You got to pick a pocket or two, boys. You got to pick a pocket or two. Large amounts. Uh, 
I was secretly hoping you'd be singing along there. Absolutely not. Why not? Because <laughs> he sings it much better than I do. So. Oh, that was such a glorious performance of it, though, wasn't it's it? It's the definitive, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I actually got a chance to work with him. He was on EastEnders when I was there. No yeah. way. Yeah, and I did sort of three weeks with him, and he was uh, just the most lovely man you could ever meet. Yeah. Did everyone keep asking him to do Fagin impressions? Well, you know, these iconic parts that people have, sometimes you know, you meet actors and they just want to detract from it as much as they possibly can because it's defined their entire career. And he was complete opposite. He would happily go into it whenever, yeah, whenever anybody oh, asked him about wonderful. it. Yeah. Because, it, of course, Fagin must be one of those sort of golden rules on every actor's list. And you yeah. are now playing Fagin I am. In, in the I production am. Well, of certainly having a go. <laughs> How is it going? It's great. It's, it's yeah, it's it's absolutely a privilege to be able to do it and it's a privilege to be able to do it in the gaiety as well um you know in that fantastic set and it's it was definitely definitely on the list to do i'm, I'm really enjoying it yeah and it, what's it like working with the kids as well because it's one of those things as well for children all child actors i would argue would love to be in a production of oliver not all but many it is and it's you know it's it's a, it's a big challenge for them i mean particularly the leads you know that oliver oliver and dodger i mean they are on stage for most of the show um and there's sort of that big section at the end of Act One, which is all of the big hitters pick a pocket and you can be back soon. It's a fine life. And, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge for them as performers. So it's a great experience. You, um, I mean, I, I would say musical theatre is not your main sort of career path. It's not. Why, <laughs> Fagan? Um, I, I, I think it's, firstly, it's an acting role. I mean, it's a, like, I mean, and I, I would say I'm more of a more of an actor than I am sort of a musical theatre type person. Um, and I just, I just love that characterization of it. I mean, I think it's just so well done and so delivered. And you can go back now and watch that film, watch that Ron Moody film, and it is, is as impressive now, um, you know, as it was when it was released. Um, I uh, managed have managed to watch the production already, uh, and there's a lot of makeup involved in the. the- it's a tailoring production. Yep. Obviously, the set and the costumes are always fantastic. There's two hours of makeup every oh day. Oh my word! So, uh, Is that because of the the nose? It's mainly the nose. Yeah. Yes, the nose has its own dressing room, um, and quite <laughs> rightly so. Um, it's quite a feat to put it on, but it's, it's a feat to put your nose on. It is, uh. but it's it's it's. Um, you know, it, it's actually only quite a small prosthetic, but it's amazing how much it changes, actually. It changes the face shape. And we've got fantastic um, lady called Janet Norris, who's the makeup supervisor. So oh, she, she was my drama teacher. She is just fabulous and a yeah. lovely, lovely lady and um, and has worried herself to death about the nose. Um, she really has worried about it, but she just does a fantastic job every it's night. It's difficult because you're under hot lights, aren't you? And so, in theory, your and it's nose August. could melt. It's, incredible. <laughs> it's made of gelatin, apparently, so it's... Um, it's a bit of a challenge on a two-show day. It's starting to get a little bit more droopy as we get to the end. You attribute a, a great deal of your life in a, in a recent presentation that you gave to some students. You attribute a lot of it to luck. Why? I think yeah, I think you have to be lucky. You always need a little bit of luck. And um, you get presented with opportunities sometimes as they come along. And that doesn't say that you don't have to make the most of them when they come along. But sometimes, just for those starts, you do need a little bit of luck, I think. And one of the, the uh, moments that you mentioned in particular was when you applied for a job at the BBC. That's right. Yes, my... I would not have got my first job at the BBC had it not been for luck. I um, It was back in the days. It, I was going to say it wasn't pre-email, but it was when you still sent your CV on a piece of paper. Um, and I had run out of um, <laughs> I'd run out of white paper. I sent out sort of 50, 60 CVs. I was looking for my first job. And I'd run out of white paper. And um, I had this sort of old yellow lined paper in the, cu- the cupboard. 
Um, so I printed my CV on that, sent that off. And that is the only reason that I got an interview for the first job that I had. And that 60 or 70 CVs landed on this person's desk. Mine was in yellow, and that's why I got the interview. That's why they I thought the you job. were eccentric or they something. They did. I thought, what an interesting guy. <laughs> How did you find CV. out afterwards? Uh, she told me. She told me. <laughs> she told me when I was, yeah. And I, I mean, I worked, that was on EastEnders, and I worked there for sort of on and off for about six, seven years and sort of built my way up the chain and... Um, there's a lady called Rona McKendrick who's still there. She's now um, top production manager there. And she was great at when anybody got too big for their boots, she would just remind them and say, well, you only got the job because your CV was on yellow paper. So it was, uh... <laughs> and you did really well there because you started off as essentially a tea boy and, uh, and then you ended up as That's an right. assistant director. Runner in charge of refreshment, which is the best job title you will ever hear. <laughs> it was literally tea boy. You had to go and get the tea trolley twice a day. And it was still, it was at Elstree, so, and Elstree was kind of the older studio, the older BBC studio, so it was still quite old-fashioned. I mean, all of the camera department used to come in full suit and tie every day, and they would stand there. You know, it was, it was fantastic. And, yeah, and part of the contract was they used to get tea twice a day. So uh, <laughs> once a week I would be dispatched to get biscuits, and it was, yeah, it was great. Did it ruin EastEnders for you, though? It, it destroyed it, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's strange. I, I, you know, people, people ask me about <clears> it, and I... Um, Soap in general tends to get quite a bad rap, I think, in the, you know, sort of within the industry. But it's it was such a fantastic experience because you look at feature films and TV dramas, they're sort of shooting two, three pages a day. You know, on Enders, we used to shoot 35, 40 pages a day. Oh, so it was my like, word. You know, if you if you couldn't handle the pressure, and that was from all of the departments, it, you know, you really needed to be on your A game in order to get that done. Um, you know, the people turning out great performances and, you know, doing it under that kind of pressure. They'd get one go at it, that was it, and we'd move on reg- regardless, really, of what you got. So it was, it was yeah, fantastic experience. So can you give us any gossip about the stars? <laughs> No, it was so long ago. It was so long ago, but they were all they 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 were lovely. The great thing about Eastenders was they they genuinely used to cast where they could real people, um, because there wasn't, to be honest, a lot of time for acting. So they needed people who were very similar to the characters, and they were all they were all absolutely lovely. And it was a privilege really to work with you know some of the greats, Barbara Windsor. I mean, yeah. Oh, I bet she. Well, is she as wonderful as I hope she was? She's better. She's yeah. She's absolutely fantastic. She really is absolutely such a dirty sense of humour. It's a lovely name drop, that isn't it? Just get that in there. Why not? Slip it in in the first five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I know, Babs, she's my friend. (laughs) That was brilliant. And then, so eventually you did come back to the Isle of Man and you kind of went from making tea to making tea. Making tea to tea, (laughs) yes. Because family business, obviously, was Harbour Lights, isn't it? It was, it was. And I I kind of, I I don't know really. I mean, I, I, I always thought that I would want to go into business at some point that was always something that I thought I would do and um, I didn't think it would be doing this and I didn't think it would originally be back here on the Isle of Man as well and I think if you'd have asked my friends at school who was the least likely to come back it would probably have been me but you know your priorities change and you know and, and sometimes it takes a a bit of perspective, I suppose, to appreciate what we have here. Um, you know, London will certainly give you that. So, mm. yeah, it was nice to come back and come into the uh, come into the family business. It was good. It's a big company now, so I mean, we've had to kind of find find our own ways through it, really, um, as the as the business has grown over the years. But yeah, because you are. Am I right in thinking that Harvard is the only one I can think of business on the Isle of Man that's sort of grown here that I. Th- think is the only one that's got almost like a chain it's got because yeah, you're all over the place i now. think we're fairly unique i mean we we've got obviously lots of locations over the island um you know the different communities that they're in have turned them into different into, into what they wanted them to be really so they're you know i would describe it as the same but different they're all kind of they all have their unique charms and they all have their you know their quirks um that's very much a part of it that's what we've always done really 
And obviously hospitality is seen as being quite a difficult industry to, to survive in. So do you think your background working at the Beeb in those sort of high pressure situations, does that help? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's... Um you know, it, it, it's, it's a people business. Um, and without that, you don't really have a business in hospitality. Um, you know, and that's definitely, they, you know, they, they are not, they are not that dissimilar, really. And lots, you can draw lots of synergy between the two. Um, and at the end of the day, it's about making people feel welcome. And actually, that's a lot of what ADing is. It's just keeping everybody calm so they can go on and do their job. That's... And filling their bellies with food, which makes them smile, which is exactly Absolutely. the same on a film set as it is we in a restaurant. We all know how important on-set catering is. Absolutely. Yes, it <laughs> is. Good man. He knows. Thanks for listening to our best bits of the week. If you missed any of last week's programmes and would like to hear them in full, you can listen on demand at manxradio.com for seven days after broadcast. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at MR Women Today. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.